Well, if you've got a Bible, open up to the book of Zechariah, which is at the almost the very tail end of the Old Testament. A couple of prophets before that one. It's page 745 if uh, you're using one of our hardback Bibles. It'll definitely be helpful if you've got the Bible open in front of you um, so you can follow along as, as we move through this passage. There's an outline on, uh, on the back of the handout if that's helpful for you to kind of see where we're going, see the main points of, uh, of this passage of Scripture. But we'll be in Zechariah chapter 2, the whole thing, verses 1 through 13. Zechariah chapter 2, 1 through 13. Um, we all understand that, uh, that expectations can cause trouble. So if somebody's expectations are too high for something and then that thing comes and it lets them down, well, it's, it's a letdown, right? It's, it's a bummer. And so oftentimes we try to temper our expectations. You know, if, if you're a parent, you might do that regularly for your kids. Um, you know, I, I think about opening presents, like, hey, who, who knows what you're gonna get, you know, at this birthday party, but just be thankful for this thing that you open, you know? Um, you might do it with your spouse in particular situations. If you have a spouse that usually has really high expectations for, for particular things, but we understand that it's, it's a bummer if you've set your expectations high and, and then you're, you're disappointed. But the, the passage we're in in Zechariah 2, so it's all about the heavenly city. So it's, it's all about the new heavens and the new earth, where Christians head when we die. And the thing that this passage teaches is, is that God's future kingdom city, it will shatter all of our expectations. It will let us down in no way, shape, or form. It will exceed in every way. And that's really the main point of our passage this morning. So with that in mind, hear the word of the Lord. Zechariah 2, 1 through 13. Zechariah says, And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord, up. Escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Okay, so this is the third of eight visions that the Lord gives to Zechariah. We talked about that the past couple of weeks. And in fact, we looked at the first two visions that he gives to Zechariah. We looked at those this past Sunday. So the vision about the horses and the riders that he has, and, and the vision about the four horns that'll be sawn down, filed down by those craftsmen. And, and remember, that was meant to be a comforting picture of God providing salvation for his people and providing defeat for the enemies, judgment against the enemies of, of his people. Well, the vision we're looking at in chapter two 
is about the place of salvation for God's people. So he'll provide salvation. This vision is about the place, about the holy city. It's about the future Jerusalem, God's kingdom city. So, so what will we learn about the kingdom city? Well, three things, all having to do with the lack of walls around the city. We're going to talk about what the connection is there. But the city won't have any walls. We're going to see why that is. Why won't it have any walls? We're going to learn three things about this future city. First, the city need, needs no walls because it's too big. Second, the city needs no walls because it's too good. And third, the city needs no walls because God is its protection. So those are the three things we're going to learn about the city. And then fourth, because this is the kind of place God offers to us, the, the final point is a call to action flee to this city. It's really the imperative. So as we go through this passage, this is what the Lord's calling all of us to do. Flee to this city. Well, look at how God sets up the vision for us. Look at the beginning of the vision, verse one. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. Okay, now we need to know right off the bat, this isn't a vision about the present day Jerusalem. So when he talks about going to measure the city, he's not going to that spot in the Middle East, that piece of real estate that was there in Zechariah's day, is here in our day. He's not talking about that. This is a vision of the future, not present Jerusalem, but future Jerusalem. And it's not just the earthly Jerusalem sometime in the future. No, this is a heavenly Jerusalem. This is a city that comes out of heaven. That's why in the book of Revelation, it's called the new Jerusalem. It's new, it's different. Listen to Revelation 21 verse 10, part of our New Testament reading this morning. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So the city we're going to hear about in Zechariah 2, it's not the city of Jerusalem that you could travel to this coming week if you wanted to. It, it's not that Jerusalem. No, that Jerusalem was always pointing forward. It was a shadow of the one great future Jerusalem, God's kingdom city that comes down out of heaven. So, so in this vision, we've got a man who's running out to measure this new Jerusalem. He, he says in verse 2, He's gonna see how long it is. He's gonna see how wide it is. And we learn from the rest of the passage, it looks like he's measuring to make preparations for building a wall, which is something that they would do. So one of the first things that would happen when you started to build a city in the ancient Near East, there's lots of enemy nations. One of the first things you do is measure the city so you can build a wall, so you can try to protect the city. It looks like that's what he's doing. He's measuring so he can build this wall. But here's what's interesting. These two angels in this vision, they convene when they see the man going to do this, and then one of them goes after the man to stop him from measuring. Look at verse three. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. So in short, the angel tells the man he doesn't have to measure because the new Jerusalem won't need walls. In fact, more than that, the heavenly city is too good for walls. Okay, so why is that? That's what the angels explained to him. Well, the, the first point he makes, and our first point this morning, 
is that the city, the future Jerusalem, the future heavenly city, it needs no walls because it's too big. It's too big for walls. Verse four, and he said to him, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. Okay, so the, the inference is clear. They're, they're communicating to this guy, hey, you, you can't build walls around the new Jerusalem because the stuff inside the city will knock over the walls. It'll go past it. There's too much stuff in here for you to build walls around it. So it's this interesting thing. I should know this because we have five kids and the oldest one is 12. So I've had 12 years of this, but it still doesn't register. If I wanted to play basketball this afternoon, which would be less safe than it would have been five years ago because I get older and bad things can happen when you do that. But if I wanted to, I would get the basketball shoes out of my closet. I bought those basketball shoes well before I met my wife. So south of 2007, those shoes still fit like a glove. No problem, right? We're grownups, most of, this, most of us in this room, same thing. But Jude goes to put on his baseball cleats because he's playing in this fall baseball league and they don't fit his feet. And then I'm reminded in that moment, oh yeah, that's the thing, this works. Kids, or that's how this works, kids grow. They need new shoes. Okay, well, that's kind of the thing here. This guy's acting like the kingdom is this static fixed thing, that it's manageable. You can build walls around it. What the angel says is no, it's much more like a kid's foot. It grows, it exceeds. If you wanna to try to put a barrier around it, that barrier is gonna be exceeded. It's going to be knocked over. It's going to be filled up. The city needs no walls because it's too big. And, and what's the new Jerusalem filled up with? The primary thing we're told here in verse 4 is a multitude of people. So God's heavenly city is full of people. And this is an incredible thing, especially if you are here and you are an introvert. God could fill up his city with anything he wanted, right? He could have filled it up so... For me, he could have filled it up with college football and with stuffed crust pizza. And I would have been so pleased with that city. God could have filled it up with anything he wanted to. What's he decided to fill it up with? People. Isn't that crazy? Especially when you remember the fact that since Genesis 3, every human is a sinner. So every human comes into this world rebelling against the Lord. We're rebels. We're actively attacking the Lord until he saves us. And yet... It's people like us that he decides to fill up his city with. It's an incredible thing. That's because our God loves people. And because he loves people, he wants people to be saved so they can spend eternity with him. And he can spend eternity with us. This is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So God loves people. And so when he makes the heavenly city, he decides to fill the thing up with people. And he's too good and gracious to just have one ethnicity there. So if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know the Old Testament is mostly a story about one ethnic group of people. It's about the nation of Israel. There's individuals from other nations that get saved, that become part of God's people, but they're few and far between. The whole Old Testament almost is taken up exclusively with God's people, Israel, this one nation. But see, his plan was always to go outside of that single group and save people from every nation and tribe and tongue, multitudes of people from all over the place. Look at verses 10 and 11 in our passage. 
There he says, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. So not just people from Israel were told, but many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day. On the day of salvation, when the heavenly city is, is instituted. And again, this was God's plan from the beginning. So part of our call to worship from Genesis 12, Genesis 12, verse 3, he says to Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So not just Israel, God's too good for that, to just limit it there. We oftentimes, you probably notice this about yourself, especially if you're built a certain way, but you might find a rhythm of the way you do things. You might find a, a certain close group of friends. And then a lot of times we're pretty set, right? Nope, I'm good. Don't need to bring anybody else in. I've got what I need. Well, the Lord is too good for that. He just overflows with goodness. So he's always drawing people from all over the place. All families shall be blessed. Listen to what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So God will fill up the table with people from all over the place. And, and that's why we're called in the Great Commission of Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations. That was our congregational reading this morning. Well, Israel by themselves, they, they could fit in a giant city, but not people from all nations, like verse 11 says. In, in fact, listen to how the inhabitants of the city are described in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Okay, so with all that, the, the thought of the guy in our passage measuring the New Jerusalem like you could just measure a regular city, that, that's a crazy thought. It's just too big. It's too expansive. So, so by way of application real quick, since God wants people, that's what he's looking for. That's why, uh, that's why this time is extending where he's not sending Jesus back yet. He's looking for more people to fill up the city. Since that's the case, why do we oftentimes think a particular non-Christian we know is just too far gone to ever be saved? Isn't that such a weird thought when we think about it that way? God loves people. That's his mission, is to save more and more people to fill up that city. And yet as Christians, we oftentimes think, oh, but not that person. That person is too far gone. They would never accept the gospel. They'd never follow Christ. Now, thinking about what Zechariah says here, that helps us realize how crazy this is. But, but also as Christians, just think about yourself. Aren't so many of us in this room, people that were in that category, where if you saw your non-Christian self today, you would say, oh, Scott would never come to the Lord. He would never be interested in Jesus, right? But no, the Lord loves people. He goes after people. And so as believers, we want to follow him in that and give the Lord an opportunity to save more people. That's what this entire life is about, him just saving more people to populate the heavenly city. So it's the first thing we see about the city. It needs no walls because it's too big. But second, the heavenly city, it needs no walls because it's too good. Look at verses four and five. He says, run, to say, uh, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. 
Okay, so the New Jerusalem, it doesn't need walls because it's too good. And it looks like that's what he's getting at here by mentioning livestock. There's a multitude of people and livestock in the city. It makes sense, like we talked about, why God fills up the city with people. We get that. But why livestock? What, what's he going for there? Well, it's because God is good to his people. And so the people in the heavenly city will be blessed. That's what he's, he's getting at there. Their needs will be fully provided for. And what would be a good way if you were communicating in a vision to somebody in Zechariah's day that the people in the city will have all that they need? Well, there'll be a multitude of livestock. That's the way God communicates it to Zechariah. That's where those people got their meat and their clothes and their milk and help with their plowing, right? Having livestock was like having an unlimited Amazon account. Like you can go on, you can order anything. Those livestock could provide everything basically that those people needed. So the city will be full of goodness. No one will have any lack. It'll be filled up with every good thing, completely empty of bad things. And of course, the best thing in the future city is God himself. Verse five, and I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Remember, we talked about this last week. The best part of heaven isn't that there's no sickness there or it's full of happiness. Those are good things. That's not the best thing. The best thing is the Lord is there. That's the best part about heaven. And if God wasn't in heaven, even if all those other good things were there, we would not want to be there. It wouldn't be good enough. God is the best thing about heaven. He is the glory in her midst. And this was a familiar idea to Israel. So in the Old Testament, the, the temple in Israel was the place where God's glory, where his presence would reside. You guys probably remember that. This is 1 Kings 8, verse 10, talking about after Solomon, David's son, after he builds the temple, this is what we're told. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Well, you might not remember this. In Ezekiel 10, as a result of the sin of God's people, their perpetual unrepentant sin over and over again, God's glory leaves the temple and his glory doesn't come back. The rest of the Old Testament, the glory of God, his presence is not in the temple. And that's part of what made Jesus's words in John chapter one, verse 14, so incredible, where he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Sinners can, can no longer experience God's glory by going into an earthly temple. We experience God's glory by going to Jesus. He's where God's presence dwells. But one day that glory will fill the future city. It'll fill the place up because God's presence will be there. End of verse five again, and I will be the glory in her midst. So that's a question for us, especially members of this church. If you were here past Sunday, have we thought about that after hearing it this past Sunday? So we heard the best part about heaven is that the Lord will be there. Have you thought about that this week? Have I thought about that this week? Is that the thing that makes us most excited about heaven? Do we think more about the blessings that come from God than we think about God? God's presence is the best part about the new Jerusalem. So the city needs no walls because it's too good. But there's a third reason Zechariah is given 
A third reason the future heavenly city won't need walls, and that's because God is its protection. And again, that was the purpose of walls in the ancient Near East. There's enemy nations. They had to build up those walls quick, or those nations could get in. So they did that to prevent danger, to fortify those cities. But look again at what God says about the protection for the new Jerusalem. Verse 5, and I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. So, so God will be like the wall. He tells us he'll be a wall of fire all around. I don't know when the last time is that you put your hand close to a flame, especially a hot flame, maybe at a, at a bonfire. It's hot. It repels anything that comes near us or near it. That's the picture we're given. God's like a wall of fire around the new Jerusalem. He'll keep every enemy away from that city so that the human enemies of Christ and Satan and your sinful flesh, they'll all be repelled. They won't be able to get in. They'll be kept out of the new Jerusalem. In fact, God will keep all sin out of the city. Revelation 21, 4, we heard this earlier. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So the people in the new Jerusalem and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Verse 5 in our passage, And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. Look at what God says about the enemies of his people down in verses 7 through 9 of our passage. He says, Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus said the Lord of hosts, After his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who served them. So the picture here, God's telling his people to flee out of Babylon, flee away from the enemy nations, because eventually he's going to judge and destroy them. So he's telling his people, get out of there. Judgment's coming on these nations. So flee, leave. Now here's what's interesting. Babylon had already been defeated at this point. Babylon had already fallen. It had already fallen to the Persians. But see, this is what the Bible does. Again, it's this idea of a shadow that points to a greater reality. Babylon in the Bible kind of takes on the image of any enemy nation of the Lord. That's why in Revelation, it talks about Babylon so often. You know, there's not a nation called Babylon today, right? No, the Persians defeated that empire a long time ago. But it stands as a symbol of all of God's enemies and all the enemies of his people. So, so here in our passage, God's pointing forward to the future final judgment of all of his enemies. And it looks like the picture we're given is, is this in this vision is a, a military commander that would wave his hand to send the troops in. Looks like that's what, in verse nine, it looks like that's what's happening. God says, behold, I will shake my hand over them and they shall become plunder for those who served them. So the heavenly city, it'll be protected forever against God's enemies. Now look at why God will protect the new Jerusalem. Verse eight, for thus the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. So the, the Hebrew here, remember the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. So the Hebrew here talks about the pupil of his eye. And the idea is, it looks like what it's saying is, you know how we protect our eyes? I had to go to the eye doctor last month, and they do that test where they blow the air in your eye, and so you're flinching the whole time. It's because we don't want somebody to touch our eye. 
It's an uncomfortable thing, so we, we protect it. That's why we close it so quick. God does everything to protect his people. So for somebody to try to touch his people is like when somebody tries to touch your eye. You protect it. We're the pupil of his eye. That's the way he, he treats us. And again, that's because he loves his people. So if you're here and you're a Christian, before the foundation of the world, God decided to love you. And because he decided to love you, he saved you in real time. He brought you to Christ, and he's keeping you now. And when Christ returns, he'll destroy all of your enemies so you can be kept safe and happy for him, with him in, in all eternity. And we should remind ourselves about this during this life. So, so when you or, or someone you care about is sick, remind yourself that God will protect the future heavenly Jerusalem against sickness. He'll keep it out. There won't be any sickness there. Or, or when you get sinfully angry with your kids or, or you struggle with the love of money or you get jealous or you get selfish, remind yourself God will be a wall of fire to keep all sins like that and every sin out of the new heavens and the new earth. When, when the world around you makes it hard to be a Christian, remind yourself that in the kingdom city, all opposition to the gospel will be kept away. It'll be kept outside the walls. So the city doesn't need walls because God is its protection. Well, we'll close by, by looking at the imperative that comes out of this. So what does God tell us to do based on this? Because the city's too good to need walls in all these different ways, because it's so much better than could be imagined, what are we supposed to do? Well, we should all flee to this city. It's the last point we'll look at. We should flee to this city. Look back at the initial message the angels have for the man who's trying to measure the new Jerusalem. Verse 4, And he said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I've spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. So it's our final point this morning, the, the one all the other points lead up to, flee to this city. So God's people, They'd been sent out of the promised land because of their sin. So remember, the, the Lord says here, I have spread you abroad. God had told his people for generations and generations, repent of your sin. Quit rebelling against me. Quit disobeying me in an unrepentant way. His people kept on at it, and then they were exiled. Northern kingdom falls to Assyria. Southern kingdom falls to Babylon. They're taken away. But see, in fact, that's, that was our situation too. The whole human race was exiled. So back in Genesis 3, remember, we talked about this in CGG this morning, when Adam and Eve sin, they're expelled from the garden, aren't they? They become sinners, and because God is so good, he has to judge sin. He has to put them out of the garden. And that's where humanity has been ever since, exiled. And, and the bad news is that this world, the world we've been inhabiting as sinful rebels, this world is destined for judgment and destruction. And, and if you're here and you're not a Christian, or you don't know what you think about Jesus, understand your position before the Lord. It, it's a fearful position right now. Anybody outside of Christ is currently awaiting the judgment of the Lord. It could come at, at any point, right? Look at verse 13. There he says, be silent all flesh before the Lord, 
for he has aroused himself from his holy dwelling. What he's saying is that one day God will decide that he's been patient enough and, and he'll get up like a lion. He'll rouse himself and he'll come to bring judgment on the world of his enemies to make everything right. And on that day, he says, be silent, all flesh. On that day, there won't be any talking back. There won't be any excuses. All flesh will be silent, we're told. And all God has to do is wave his hand, like he does in verse 9, to bring that judgment. But see, the, the good news is you can escape that judgment. You can escape it. You can be safe from it. You can flee to the heavenly Jerusalem and secure your place there. How? By fleeing to Jesus, by trusting in Christ. In fact, my best guess is, is that Jesus shows up in this passage. We don't know this for sure, but let me show you why I think this is. Look at what we're told in verse 10. So this vision God gives Zechariah, verse 10, he says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Okay, I don't know if you caught that, but, but it's pretty interesting. So who is the one who is speaking? When we read these verses, who's the one who's talking? Well, it's God. Look at the middle of verse 11. He says, and I will dwell in your midst. We know that's God because the middle of verse 10 just told us, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Okay, so in verse 11, the one dwelling in your midst is God. Okay, hold on to that. Now look at the end of verse 11. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Okay, so how can you have God being sent to you by God? How does that work? Well, as Christians, we know how that works. Jesus is the one who is God and is sent by God. It's the same thing that happens in Psalm 110. I don't know if you remember that. Psalm 110, that's where David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. You remember Jesus comes along and he makes it clear. He's not talking about a human king. No, the Lord said to my Lord. He's talking about Jesus, the son of God. The Lord, the father says to the son, and they are both Lord. They're both God. I think that's what's happening here in verse 11. God, the father's plan was always to send God the son. The reason he sent him is because that's the only reason people can be saved. We have to have a sacrifice for our sins. And it has to be a sacrifice that is a person, right? When my kids get in trouble, if they said to me, hey, instead of me being punished, could this Barbie be punished instead? Could this remote control car be punished instead? It doesn't work that way, right? You can't trade out a person and trade in a Barbie. No, it needs to be a person. The sacrifice had to be a person. But here's the thing, it had to be a perfect sacrifice. Because sins, a lifetime of sins against an eternally good God, that merits a sacrifice. It's a perfect, flawless sacrifice. No blemish. Perfect. Okay, so when you get those two things, it has to be a human, but it has to be a perfect human. There's only one person that can fit that bill. It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He has to be fully man, but he also has to be fully God. That's exactly who Christ is. And that's why he came. That's why he died on the cross. And that's why any sinner who will trust in him can flee from destruction 
and is brought into that future heavenly city. That pronouncement is made in the present. God considers us innocent the second that we trust in Christ alone for our salvation. So if you're not a Christian, do that. Put your hope in Christ. Flee from the coming judgment that you deserve and we deserve because of our sin. Flee to the city by fleeing to Christ, trusting in him. Come and talk to me after the service if you're interested in thinking about that more, or if you decide to do that now, come and talk to me about that, about the good news of the gospel. Now for us as Christians, because of God's grace, we, we've been given a spot in the new Jerusalem. We have it, it's, it's secure. So right off the bat, one response we should have is to rejoice in that. Look down at verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. So the world is falling around, uh, falling down all around us. It always has been. The world's a broken place. It's always been since Genesis 3 a broken place. And even though some of us have been Christians for decades and decades, we still haven't figured out how to quit sinning, have we? We continue to sin in all sorts of different ways. But, but see, it won't always be like this. One day a kingdom city will come, and because we're in Christ, we'll be brought there, brought inside of the city, and then no bad thing inside of us or bad thing outside of us will ever happen again. So the Lord tells us, rejoice. That's the proper response. Rejoice. So, so think about this. The last tear, the last sad tear you have before you die or before Christ returns, that will be the last sad tear you ever have. Is that not incredible? The last pain that you feel before you die or before Christ returns, that will be, in fact, the last pain you will ever have because you're going to a city where those things don't happen anymore. So the Lord tells us here to sing and rejoice. When we looked at Psalm 47 last month, God's command for us to sing loudly and joyfully. So this is a good time to take stock. Have you been doing that on Sunday mornings? Are you singing loudly and joyfully? We should, in part because of truths like this, because of where we're going, because of the good news of the heavenly city, so rejoice. But, but as we close, there's a way in which, even though your spot is secure in the New Jerusalem, you're still supposed to actively flee to the city. Look at verses six and seven again. He says, up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I've spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Okay, so remember, God's people had been exiled. They're out of the promised land. They were among the other nations. And this is God's call to come back. Leave those other nations. Flee from the cities of the north. Because they were all north of Jerusalem. So he's telling them, come back. Come to Zion, the hill that's in the middle of Jerusalem. And see, that's us too. So they were outside the promised land. That's your position as a Christian in this world. That's why 1 Peter 1.1 calls us elect exiles. Because through our trust in Christ, we, we belong in heaven, but we're still in this world. And so here's the thing. Here's the upshot. Here's the way we're supposed to flee to the city now, even as Christians. The Lord knows one temptation for exiles is they will warm up to the culture of the place where they have been exiled. They'll assimilate. That's the thing that just happens, right? Bad company uh, corrupts good morals. You've heard that verse. 
The Lord knows that's the way that it works with his people. If we're surrounded by a certain culture, it's easy to assimilate. That's what happened to King Solomon, you remember? He had all that wisdom, he was following the Lord, but then he took those foreign wives and he adopted their gods as his own. And then everything went downhill from there. Well, the Lord knows we'll have the same temptation as Christians in the exile, in this world. So Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world. So in that way, do what the Lord says to do in verse 6. Up, up, flee from the land of the north. Don't assimilate. Don't be conformed to the way this world operates. Flee to the city. So don't think about your money the way the world does. Flee from the land of the north. Don't adopt the work ethic of the world. Flee to the land of the north, from the land of the north. Don't parent your kids the way the world does. Flee from the land of the north. The Israelites were, were living like Babylonians, but the Lord wants us to operate it according to the kingdom. In fact, in Revelation 18.4, God uses Babylon again as representative for all the enemy nations of, of the Lord. He says, come out of Babylon, my people, lest you take part in her sins. So in the way you think and live, turn away from this world and, and flee to the city. So, so this is God's kingdom city. It doesn't need walls because it's too big and it's too good. And God is its ultimate protection. It's, it's better than any of us can even imagine. And when the man at the beginning of our passage goes out to measure it, the angels let him know what a crazy thought that is. It, it can't be measured. It exceeds all boundaries. It, it exceeds all expectations. Let's pray together. Um, Father, we're so thankful for this city that you put in front of us as our future. We pray, Father, that, that our trust in Christ would deepen and grow, and that more and more we would turn from the ways of this world, adopt the ways of the kingdom, and live as people who will one day dwell in that city. We pray, Father, in the meantime, we would rejoice that our, our future is certain, not because of us and our strength, but because of Christ, his faithfulness and his strength. Take a moment now, pray silently and individually that the Spirit would press these truths in on your heart. Take just a moment to do that now.